0: Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. In our last episode, we met the new kings of the Franks, and took a look at their conquests, harsh realities and all. While we got a taste for just how power-hungry and cruel the Sons of Clovis could be, this episode, we're going to dive straight into the deep end of their depravities, in episode 7, To Scheme or Not to Scheme. As we know from the last episode, after the death of Clovis, his eldest son Theuderic became a sort of senior king ahead of his younger brothers, who all inherited a piece of Clovis's kingdom. Eventually, though, these young kings would become restless and show the same sort of warlike mettle of their father and elder brother. Clothar helped Theuderic ravage Thuringia as well as helping himself to a princess along the way, and all three younger brothers attacked Burgundy with differing levels of success. But how did the younger brothers feel about Theuderic’s prominent position? Well, not good. The three young sons of Clovis and Clothild might have had no choice but to accept Theuderic's position at first, but once they were of age it quickly became clear they felt no loyalty towards the elder king. And so the scheming began. It seems fairly clear that Theuderic was simply more powerful than any of the other three, and they dared not challenge him directly. In a similar vein, it is also likely that their troops felt uncomfortable attacking the senior king, who was both successful and well-regarded at this point. But, on the other side, Theuderic must have been very aware that he was vulnerable to treachery from his three half-brothers, especially after the death of Clodimer in Burgundy, The suspicion between the brothers seems to have reached a fever pitch, but they still dared not attack each other openly. So, there was only one path left to them. Backstabbing. According to Gregory, Theuderic made the first move. While campaigning in Thuringia, he summoned Clothar and attempted to hide assassins behind a canvas sheet. The ploy failed, though, when Clothar spotted their feet and Theuderic was forced to give Clothar an expensive piece of loot to smooth over the situation, which he then immediately sent his son Theudebert to retrieve. This was only the beginning, though, and hardly puts Theuderic out of the ordinary. While they were still in Thuringia, a rumour flew around the city of Clermont Ferrand, a city belonging to Theuderic. Apparently, the king was dead, killed in his campaign against the Thuringians. An ambitious Gallo-Roman noble named Arcadius immediately moved to take advantage of the confusion. He sent word to Childebert, offering to turn over the city to him. Childebert showed absolutely zero reluctance in stealing a city from his elder brother, and immediately set out to take control of the area. When he arrived at Clermont-Ferrand, however, the confused populace barred the gates. It appears that rumours of Theuderic's death were not enough, and the people simply weren't ready to throw their lot in with Childebert until he had confirmation that their king was dead. This probably was not out of any kind of loyalty to the Elder Merovingian. Most likely, the populace were afraid of what Theuderic would do to them if he had survived and returned to discover their treachery. This concern was warranted, as Gregory notes that Theuderic would completely devastate the region, a region he controlled. Arcadius had unlocked the gates for Childebert while he was outside, and the king had then entered the city only to hear that Theuderic's army had returned from campaign and was nearby, at which point he duly fled and left the townsfolk to their fate. The sacking of Clermont and the Auvergne region is one of those fascinating episodes in Merovingian history. Gregory places it after the second campaign into Thuringia and during the second invasion of Burgundy, this time by Childebert and Clothar. He explains that Theuderic's troops were angry that he didn't go with his brothers to Burgundy and that they were missing out on the loot from the rich region. To quell their discontent, Theuderic targeted the Auvergne region and wreaked brutal revenge for their apparent treachery with his brother. This would place the campaign in 534, during Childebert and Clothar's victory over Godemar in Burgundy. Our friend Ian Wood... Among other historians, disagrees with this, however, and effectively argues that this campaign actually took place in the early 520s, after Clodimer's invasion of Burgundy and Theuderic's first Thuringian campaign. Either way, the sacking of an entire region in revenge for a single man's treacherous act is extreme, even for the Merovingians, and Arcadius was likely just a convenient excuse for Theuderic to bolster the loyalty of his troops. This would make more sense if it was in the early 520s and his troops' loyalty was wavering after a lacklustre first campaign in Thuringia and Theuderic's refusal to join Clodimer in Burgundy. Speaking of Burgundy, why did Theuderic consistently refuse to join the lucrative invasions his younger brothers perpetrated? As the eldest and most powerful Merovingian, wouldn't he want to go toe-to-toe with their last remaining rival in Gaul? Well, it is here we see how the Burgundians successfully used diplomacy to bolster their position and divide the dangerous Frankish kings. Theuderic had married the former Burgundian king Sigismund's daughter, Gotha, whose Ostrogothic mother was, believe it or not, called Ostrogotho. Now, this marriage reveals a lot about the diplomatic situation in Gaul. It seems that despite the bad blood between the Merovingians and the Burgundians, Theuderic went ahead and made a marriage alliance with them anyway. While it is worth noting that he was not the son of Clothild, and had been active in the realm during his father's last years, when the Burgundian alliance against the Visigoths was still important, neither of these factors entirely explain his move. It seems likely that Theuderic saw his relationship with the Burgundians as insurance against his ambitious younger brothers. Perhaps he knew Clothild's influence would prevent them from making similar deals with the Burgundian royals, and new Burgundian support could help him see off any military challenges to his position if things got desperate. When seen from this perspective, we gain a glimpse into the unstable political game the brothers were playing behind the scenes. But, if this interpretation is true, it seems Theuderic massively miscalculated. To be fair, he had no way of knowing Sigismund would murder his own son and throw his realm into chaos. When Clodimer invaded, Theoderic would also be forgiven for thinking the experienced Burgundian king might remove one of his brotherly rivals for him, and likely did not expect such a quick and decisive victory from Clodimer. The invasion of the next year must have been nerve-wracking for the senior king. If Clodimer had succeeded in pushing Godomar out of Burgundy, he could have seized the whole realm for himself, massively shifting the balance of power in his favour. If we believe Wood and put Theuderic's Alverna campaign around this time, it might be possible he moved south to take drastic action and intercept a victorious Clodimer on his way back west. Luckily for Theuderic, however, Clodimer was killed and his wife's uncle consolidated his hold on Burgundy. From his newly restored position of strength, he was now able to act with more freedom, and thus felt comfortable accepting Clothar's help on his second invasion of Thuringia. For the next decade, Theuderic's position seems to have been safe, but he was about to be hit by two major events that would bring him back down to the level of his brothers. First, he had underestimated Clothar and Childebert, whose ruthlessly effective campaign in Burgundy completely destroyed the realm. This boosted the brothers at roughly the same time Theoderic faced the second major event. Munderic was a powerful nobleman in the Frankish realm, but it seems he had higher ambitions than this. A year or two before the Burgundian campaign, Munderic put forth his claim to a peace of the kingdom. He claimed to be the son of Clodoric, the same treacherous son who Clovis had encouraged to murder his father, Sigibert the Lame, and thus, was entitled to the inheritance Clovis had cheated his father out of. Now, Munderic's claim to be Clodoric's son was almost certainly bogus, but his rebellion was no joke. As a noble, he already had a sizable retinue, and his claims to kingship seems to have quickly gathered a large host around him. He was the son of powerful Frankish nobles and had even married into the Gallo-Roman aristocracy. He definitely had the ability to rule effectively, if given the chance. Theuderic, however, knowing the danger of allowing any powerful noble to think that they could make a claim to kingship, moved quickly to contain the problem. It is entirely possible that Theuderic's preoccupation with Munderic is what allowed Childebert and Clothar to move against Burgundy, free from the meddling of their elder brother. It is worth noting that Munderic's rebellion is significant in another way. If you remember back a couple of episodes, Clovis had spent the last years of his reign murdering his way through the kings, chiefs, and rulers of the Franks, as well as their families, all to ensure no claimants to power could challenge him or his sons. The Merovingian name would soon become associated with authority in Francia, an impressive feat given the dozens of rulers of the Franks during Clovis's early reign. Later rebels, like Gundeveld, whose rebellion we will talk about later, all went out of their way to claim Merovingian heritage, seeing it as the only pathway to power. This makes Munderic unique, the only major rebel not to claim to be a Merovingian. It is also what made him dangerous. Theuderic had enough problems with his half-brothers, and letting a non-Merovingian roam the state free, claiming to be a king, would quickly erode his position. The younger generation might know nothing but Merovingian domination, but there were still those Franks alive who remembered a time when the Franks were just a coalition, not slaves to the family of Clovis. Munderic likely gave those people hope, a hope Theuderic desperately needed to squash as soon as possible. As Munderek was apparently loose in Theuderic's part of the realm, and Theuderic was still acting like the senior king, Childebert and Clothar seemed more than happy to let the rebel continue to hassle their older brother, and to nab a free Burgundy while he was distracted. This is yet another example of the ways in which these brothers were always shifting around to undermine each other at every possible turn. Theuderic moved to defeat Munderic's force, unwilling to let this go on. While Munderic had been gathering a large host, it seems at this point it was still not a match for Theuderic's battle-hardened troops. He and his army retreated to the fortress of Vitry in Brul, and sat there as Theuderic's army slowly encircled them. Now, to openly challenge the senior king of the realm, who had been successfully ruling for twenty years at this point, was undoubtedly brave, but the fact that over the first week of the siege. Facing out against Theuderic's army, no one tried to cut the locks to curry favour with Theuderic, is a testament to Munderic's leadership skills. It appears the force inside the walls was loyal and determined, and this presented a problem for Theuderic. The longer this went on, the weaker he looked, and in the prestige based politics of Gaul, this was a major threat. Also, his haste in chasing Munderic is revealed here, as he had neglected to bring any siege weapons. He couldn't storm the walls without losing too many men, even if he could convince them to wade into such a bloodbath. He had already attempted to goad Munderic into fighting him in a pitched battle, but Munderic had refused. So, out of options, Thuderic resorted to trickery. Like father, like son, I guess. Theuderic sent a man named Arigasil into the fortress. Once inside, Arigasil began to sow the seeds of doubt. He pointed out that Theuderic was determined and wasn't going to leave. He may not be able to storm the fortress, but how long would the defenders be able to last until they ran out of food? Did they really want to sit around starving to death? Why not come out and give yourselves up? Munderic, however, was reluctant. He clearly didn't trust Theuderic. When Arigasil promised that if he simply surrendered and gave himself up, his treason would be forgiven and he and his sons would be allowed to live, Munderic was still unsure. Arigasil then put his hands on a holy altar and swore that he had arranged for their safe conduct with Theuderic. Seeing this pious act, Munderic was convinced. He had no wish to watch his men starve on his behalf, and saw this as the best way out of their situation. He agreed to accompany Arigasil out of the gates. But, as I'm sure you're expecting, the whole thing was a ruse. As soon as they were surrounded by Theuderik's men, Arigasil loudly said, Men, why are you staring at Munderic so closely? Have you never seen him before? At this signal, the men rushed forward to kill the pretender. Recognizing his hopeless position, Munderic thrust his javelin through Aurigesil's chest, revenging himself on the traitorous man. He then drew his sword and slew several of Theuderic's men on the steps of the fortress, before being brought down by their numbers. Theuderic's men then seized the gates, and none of Munderic's family or followers are ever mentioned again. Following this delightful departure from Merovingians plotting against each other, it is time to return to the main event. Merovingians plotting against each other. Theuderic seems to have been aware of his reduced position after Munderic and the conquest of Burgundy, so he made an alliance with Childebert. Childebert must have become increasingly jealous of his brother Clothar, who seems to have been a more active and likely more popular king with the troops. Their alliance involved an exchange of prisoners, but their relationship quickly soured again, and the prisoners were enslaved and sold. Who cares about them, though? They were only the sons of prominent senatorial families. Gallo-Romans? Gross. Who needs them? After this quick bit of realm-destabilising pettiness, Childebert turned his attention to the sons of Clodimer. As mentioned in the last episode, after their father's death in Burgundy, Clothild had been raising them. They were now getting older, dangerously close to their age of majority. They were princes of the blood, and had as strong a claim to kingship as anyone else. On top of this, they were firmly ensconced in Paris, where they were being doted on by the influential matriarch of the Merovingian house. Clothorde appears to have been truly determined to have them follow their father, even saying Once I see you succeed him on the throne, I shall forget that I have lost my son. Her other sons, however, were not so keen on the idea. Childebert ruled from Paris, and it appears he slowly became jealous of the attention Clothild paid to the princes. From his perspective, she was essentially raising his rivals, and he had no intention of sharing his realm. He stewed, becoming even more bitter. With the influential Clothild behind them, being raised in the former seat of Clovis himself, the grandsons of the famous king were in prime positions to seize parts of the realm. Childebert knew his mother's reach was long, knew she was a consummate politician, and knew once they were of age, this situation would become a lot messier and harder to deal with. So, he decided to take drastic action. He reached out to Clothar, appealing for his help despite his previous secret alliance against him. Once he explained his plan, Clothar, who also had no desire to see his brother's sons challenge him, agreed to take part, apparently with delight. Clothar joined his brother at Paris, and together they began spreading rumours that they were planning to crown the young princes. This was apparently effective, as Clothild, upon receiving a request that she send the boys to their uncles for their coronation, did not doubt her sons, and was apparently overjoyed that Clotham's sons would eventually receive their due but they would not receive anything from their jealous uncles. Once they had their hands on the boys, they locked them away. Then, according to Gregory, the brothers sent Arcadius, the same man who had doomed Clermont to Theuderic's reprisals, to speak with their mother. He arrived at her door with a pair of scissors and a drawn sword. He then demanded that she decide the fate of the princes, to have their long hair cut and be forever barred from the throne, or to be killed by their uncles. Terrified by the armed man in her room, distraught at the news of what her sons had done, and really just filled to the brim with trauma from her long, hard life, Clofield wept, and said, if they are not to ascend to the throne, I would rather see them dead than with their hair cut short. She would immediately regret these words, but the damage was done. Hearing them, Arcadius ran back to the two kings, who, with their mother's words now giving them at least some cover for their actions, they took the step beyond what even their father had done. Clothar stepped forward and seized the elder son, throwing him on the ground and stabbing him until his screams ceased. Watching his uncle rise, soaked in his brother's blood, the younger son threw himself at Childebert's feet. He cried out, help me, help me dearest uncle lest I perish as my brother has done. Looking down at the terrified child at his feet, Childebert found that he could not kill him. He had watched this boy grow up, and simply could not bring himself to stab him with his knife. As he wept, he turned to his blood soaked brother Clothar and said, My dear brother, I beg you to have pity on him, and grant me his life. I will give you anything you ask in exchange. If only you will agree not to kill him. Despite his jealousy and greed, it seems Childebert really didn't have the heart to murder his own nephew in cold blood. Clothar, on the other hand, was disgusted by this display of remorse. He swore at his brother, pointing out that the whole thing had been his idea. He threatened to kill Childebert there and then if he didn't make the child stop cowering at his feet. With this threat, Childebert picked up the boy and threw him on the ground beside Clothar, who quickly fell on him and stabbed him to death as well. The eldest son had been ten years old. The younger, only seven. This act was about as horrifying as the Merovingians would get. Clothar, his work done, mounted his horse and rode back to his realm immediately. Childebert also left the city skulking around the outskirts for the time being. Neither did anything about the corpses. Clothild was left to take her dead grandsons, place them on a bier, and then arrange for their funeral. There was a third son, the youngest, who escaped his uncle's clutches, but wisely he had his hair cut and later became a priest. While he was being whisked away, Clothild was left to lead the funeral procession to bury the young princes at the church of St. Peter. She would soon retreat back into her religious retirement, but her part in our story is not yet done. This whole episode is not free of historical controversy. Some question Arcadius' appearance, suggesting the kings themselves confronted their mother. Some question Clothold's motives, claiming she was not distraught and spoke clearly, knowing the best thing to do was to kill the princes. Whatever the truth, the whole episode is grim. Of that, there can be no doubt. We are going to leave it here for this episode. I know I promised we would be done with the Sons of Clovis in two episodes, but there is simply too much ground to cover, and things are about to get even more complicated. It's going to take another whole episode to reach the eventual reunification of the Frankish realm. But it will be a wild one, with kings dropping left and right, and plenty of warring, both against each other and against foreign foes. See you then.